if you love the designs and artwork on your tumbler or on your cup. Look no further than old customs where creativity and genius is right on your cup. Enjoy. Hey, good evening, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Universal Laws by Sun Ra Ricks II. This is your host, Sun Ra Ricks. Bring it to you live, bring it to you with a little energy. Yes, yes, yes. You know, the more I do research on James Baldwin, the more intrigued I am to learn about him. Um... One of the most fascinating individuals that you'll ever hear of or you'll ever see. Um, but one of his works, his uh, books, If Bill Street Could Talk. I've never seen the movie, movie before, but um, I would like to see it. Now, I know it's good if Regina King is in the film. All right. I know it is going to be fantastic. But I'm going to give you a little bit of bio about it. In this stunning, brutally honest novel written by James Baldwin, is given the Americans a moving story of love in the face of injustice. Told through the eyes of Tish, a 19-year-old girl who fell in love with a young man, a young man named Fonny. What Fonny was, he was a young sculpture who is the father of her child. Now, in James Baldwin, this story mixes the sweet and the sad. Tish and Fonny had pledged to get married, but Fonny is falsely accused of a terrible crime and was in prison. Their families set out to clear his name and as they face his uncertain future. The young Lovers experience so much of different emotions, affections for each other. Dismay, despair, but optimism. This love story that evokes in the minds of many evokes the blues where passion sadness moodiness whatever you call it is noticeable but inevitable intertwined Baldwin James Baldwin has created two characters so alive and profoundly 
realize that they are unforgettable but very recognizable. Tish and Fonny's story is a household name for a lot of black families. Tish and Fonny. Well, Tish and Fonny is a household name. Well, people will compare it to Romeo and Juliet. They will compare it to other novels, other characters. They will even compare it to Adam and Eve. But they're totally different. This is true love. This is pure love. No matter what they did, no matter what their occupation or their status here in this world, they have pure love for one another. They love each other's physical appearance, but they love each other's spiritual appearance. Their spirituality and their connection has really, really helped them bond. Sure, they have a child together, but their endless love, their endless passion for each other has had their relationship survive the test of time. Their relationship is so strong, not even a tornado can knock it down. All right. So I read a little bit of Bill Street. If Bill Street could talk, but I did not see the movie. All right. Let's read this here. Tish had delivered a beautiful, healthy baby girl, but she died just days after giving birth to their second child. The death of Tish has put her entire family in pain and grief, and people are feeling heartbroken for the newborn baby so your heart goes out to Tish well, let's read the story of Tish Latay Merritt's a beloved Brunswick, Georgia, mother passed away. This is Merricks, Tish Merricks, a graduate of Brunswick High School, tragically died barely days after welcoming her daughter. Tish was announced dead after a long battle with sickle cell anemia. So it's a lot of fun, but it's also heartbreaking. Extremely heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. Very heartbreaking. So for Fonny. Now Fonny 
was co- was actually convicted of a charge, a rape charge they did not commit. So it could be related to today's story as well. You have so many men, so many innocent black men who was falsely accused of something that they didn't even do, especially rape. The Me Too movement has accused a lot of men for some things that they didn't even do. Hell, they even, they're known to get a lot of men fired from their job just so they can diversify the workplace, like bring in more women. I mean, it's actually happened. It's happened a lot of times. Remember the Lockheed Martin case? Remember that? Yeah. So, um... It was a... It was a great, great story. Terrific story. And finally, he was he was a young man who wanted to take care of the family. He really did. But I thought that after being falsely accused, it not only hurt him, but it affected his family. Now, originally, in the novel, when Fonley was arrested after being accused of rape, however, he was never acquitted for the crime, but he was released from prison on bail. And they never went to trial. So, basically, he was a free man. James Baldwin, what he did with his Bill Street Could Talk, was really introducing to the American and to the world struggles and the value of black love that's right I said the value of black love alright black love can be so strong and so incredible as they say till death do us part when death do us part when I read some articles and I look and look and look, I'm like, this is a fascinating tale. It really is. Um, now, reportedly, this movie was inspired by Baldwin's own friend's experience. 
All right. His friend's experience of life, of um, injustice, um, the struggles of staying to yourself or staying innocent when somebody is accusing you of something that you didn't do. But your loved one still stood by you and felt that you are innocent 100%. I didn't see the movie, but I read a little bit of Bill Street, if Bill Street could talk. Outstanding novel by an outstanding writer. It is a true love story about it's not pride it's not only pride but it's about respecting one another no matter what economic status they are in they respect and love each other now today's love is about what you can get out of the relationship Everybody keeps talking about, well, what do you bring to the table? Well, what do I bring to the table? This and that and the other. The one thing you should ask is, do you love me unconditionally? Forget about what you put on the table. Will you commit to me? Even through the struggles? Will you commit to me? Even if I make countless mistakes, and still find a way to redeem themselves. Do you still love me? No matter what conditions I have going on. Timeless love is what counts. Man, I say, no, what do you put on the table? What do you put to the table? How about we love each other in peace? All right. I'll say this once I look at the movie, I will give you a full, full review of the movie. But I wanted to bring this out here just to say that James Baldwin is a total genius now you remember that interview that he had overseas in Paris where he talked about why he left America it was like there was so much injustice in New York City and all in America that he felt that He would not survive. And he had to flee from a country that he was born in. A lot of conservatives will look at him as a communist. Oh, you're a communist. He's the biggest communist. He's a great writer, but he's a communist.
what about his principle? What principle did he set for him to leave America? Answer that. What really made him leave? And why you think he should have stayed? He has the every right to leave. He has the every right to flee from a different scenery to another. You know what? They say the grass isn't greener on the other side, but sometimes the change of scenery can recharge and restart your life. We all need to be restarted. Ain't nothing like having your life restarted. So I would say to all of you, it's great to look at the film, but I would read James Baldwin's novel first. You will get a true experience of what life is like in the 40s in New York City, in America. And if I'm going to tell you, I don't think it's a good idea to remake or do a documentary or a movie of James Baldwin. I don't think it's a good idea. I don't think it's a good idea that Billy Porter should play a documentary of James Baldwin. I've heard of his sexuality. And he doesn't like to mention or bring it up. He was more focused on the struggles of America, the progress of Black America, the advancement of Black America. He never, he rarely talks about his sexuality. In fact, he doesn't even like to talk about it. You know, you see Mr. Porter. Mr. Porter wouldn't be a great fit because the man would over-sexualize James Baldwin. And it would not be a watchable documentary. This isn't to take a shot at Mr. Porter. This isn't to disrespect him. I might not be the biggest fan of his because of his behavior but I will not insult or disrespect him okay I don't like to this is about positive a positive press about somebody but I can also say that I can't can't support a documentary that would over-sexualize James Baldwin. Have it too mainstream instead of bringing the absolute primary source truth. Just like Lee Daniels was trying to remake The Spook Who Sat By The Door. 
1972 film that starred Lawrence Cook, Paula Kelly, J.A. Preston, the most underrated film of all time. I think J.A. Preston is still alive, but Lawrence Cook and um, Lawrence Cook passed away over 30 years ago, and Paula Kelly recently passed away. So it would be hard to. I think they should not do a documentary. I think they should leave the original movie to itself. Don't remake it. Please don't remake it. Please. But I give it five stars because of its authenticity, its passion, its passion of bringing black love together, and its meaning and its importance. Alright, that will be the daily message for today on James Baldwin's If Bill Street Could Talk. Yes, um, maybe I could do a little bit more, but I just want to give a little review of it. So I'm hoping to be back tomorrow. At the same time, until next time, everybody, y'all be blessed, y'all be safe. See you later. Well, I should say, much love to all of you all around the world. America, Indonesia, Italy, Japan, Jamaica, much love to all of you. So until next time, I'm out. Stay safe. Y'all be blessed. Love creativity? Do you enjoy artwork on your book bag, handbag, a mug, a tumbler, even on a keychain? Then check out Love Able Creations, where she puts all of her love through her artwork. Yes, check out Love Able Creations where creativity meets innovation in an accessory. Yeah. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. Hey, I've decided to go ahead and do an episode about James Baldwin. Yes, um, I love James Baldwin. I don't know a whole lot about him, but some of the things I've heard and read, it was just blows my mind. Um, I wanted to talk about the famous writer, James Baldwin, born in New York City, August 2nd, 1924. He was a novelist, a playwright, and he talks about 
passionately the subject of race in America. And he is the important voice during the 1950s, 60s, and to the 70s. Yes. Um, he is the eldest of nine children, grew up in Harlem in New York City. Um, they, they were very poor. Um, they didn't have a whole lot. His family didn't. Um, but when he was in middle school, he was very active um, during out-of-school hours as a preacher in a small church. And this is a period where he wrote about his semi-autobiography, first and finest novel, Go Tell It on the Mountain, in 1953. I believe he was 19 years old at the time. Or was it? No, I'm sorry. Forgive me. He was 29 at the time. And it's play about a woman evangelicus. I'm sorry. Excuse me. Let me let me start over. Okay. Then he did a play about a woman evangelist, the Amen Corner, performing in New York City, 1965, when he was about 31 years of age. Before he became a writer, he had, you know, jobs that didn't pay much. All right. He was a self-learner. And he, um, he was self-taught. All right. He did apprenticeship in Greenwick Village, the Bohemian Quarter of New York City. Now, he did go to Paris in 1948, where he lived for the next eight years. In later years, from 1969 until his death in 1987. All right. But um, he returned in America in 1957 and... He was a voice for the civil rights movement, a movement which involved uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., um, then later on, um, Malcolm X. But Malcolm X was a leader of the Nation of Islam. He was a powerful speaker. A lot of people love his intellect on um, the black struggle in America. Um, he was a... Uh, he was pro-Second Amendment, Malcolm X was, and that's why um, at the end, James Baldwin and Malcolm X, they respected each other. Now, um, he continued to write until his death, publishing works like Going to Meet the Man, a collection of short stories, the novels, Tell Me How Long the Train Has Been Gone, 1968, but the most famous, If Beale Street Could Talk in 1974. That was his famous one in The Price of a Ticket, 1985. Um, wow. But I want, I'm going to get into 
if Bill Street could talk. That is probably one of his most famous writings. All right. All right. Something that is so, so powerful. Um, hold on, everybody. Hold on. I'm going to read here in this uh, Goodreads article. This honest and stunning novel, James Baldwin has given America a moving story of love in the face of injustice, told through in the eyes of Tish, a 19-year-old girl who is in love with Fonny, a young sculptor who is the father of her child. Baldwin's story mixes the sweet and the sad. Tish and Fonny have pledged to get married, but Fonny is falsely accused of a terrible crime and imprisoned. Their family set out to clear his name, and as they face an uncertain future, the young lovers experience a Callous, was it? Kaleidoscope of emotions, affection, despair, and hope. And a love story that evokes the blues where passion and sadness are inevitably intertwined. Baldwin has created two characters so alive and profoundly realized that they are unforgettably ingrained in the American psyche. This was in. January 1974, um, the movie, the film, which was, um, I believe it won an Academy Award. Yes. Um, yeah, it, it, <clears throat> excuse me. Now, this, uh, If Bill Street Could Talk, the movie won an Academy Award um, for Best Actress in a Supporting Role. Regina King, who is one of my favorite actresses. Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress, Regina King. Academy Award for Best Music, Nicholas Britell. Academy Award for Best Writing, Barry Jenkins. Is a Golden Globe Award for Best Motion Picture. Um, Critics' Choice Movie Award for Best Supporting Actress, Regina King. Regina King is, in my opinion, the greatest actress of all time. Yes. So, um, there was some kind of similarities and differences in the movie but i would tell people yes i love the movie it's a beautiful movie but please i would prefer you guys to read the book if beale street could talk it's so good that i want to purchase it myself okay if beale street could talk please get the book by james baldwin actually one of them um all-time great books.
So I'm gonna give you guys a little treat here. That's right. I'm gonna give y'all a treat. And it's something that I want everybody to look at or listen to. That's right. Because there was the debate between James Baldwin and Malcolm X that I want you guys to listen to. All right, I've never listened to it before, believe it or not, as a historian. Well, but also too, I am not your Negro. He talks about, you know, the experience in um, America and the racial um, perception of black America during um, the 40s, 50s, and 60s um, is something to listen to, uh, something to read. Um, it is very powerful. But um, let's, um, we're going to listen to it. Uh, not for myself, but as a follower and helper and representative of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, who is the spiritual head of the fastest growing group, religious group, of black people here in the Western Hemisphere. When we give our views, we don't give them as a civic group, we don't give them as a political group, but we give them primarily as a religious group. And any solution that we support, we absolutely uh, feel that it's a religious solution rather than a political solution. One of the one of the reasons that the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, uh, in teaching us here in America, uh, is giving us a solution that differs drastically from the sit-in movement. He's trying to make us men. Now, the the very fact that you find students all over the world today are standing up for their rights and fighting for their rights, but here in America, the so-called Negro students have allowed themselves to be maneuvered under a tag uh, of sit-in. It actually, I guess it describes, it. the, the name describes its nature. That it's a passive thing. And uh, if their goal is uh, integration, it's not a worthwhile one, but if their goal is freedom, justice, and equality, then that's a worthwhile goal. If integration is going to give the black people in America complete freedom, complete justice, and complete equality, then it's a worthwhile goal. The holding this integration uh, uh, bottle, and dangling it in front of the Negroes in America today, has actually uh, disabled them, or it has uh, nullified their ability to stand up and fight like a man for something that is theirs by right, rather than to just sit around and beg and wait for the white man to make up his mind that they're worthy to have this type thing. I think that this is, in my opinion, why we disagree with the uh, sit-in movement. If uh, they are willing to wait for another hundred years for the white man to change his mind, to accept them as a human being, then they're wrong. Uh, but if they're willing to lay down their life tonight or in the morning in order that we can have what is ours by right tonight or in the morning, then it's a good movement. But as long as they're willing to wait for the white man 
to make up his mind that they are qualified to be respected as human beings, then I'm afraid that all of their uh, waiting and their planning is for naught. Uh, as, as Thurgood Marshall said on New Year's Eve, uh, the, the Supreme Court brought about the desegregation decision, I think, uh, six or seven years ago, and there is only 6% desegregation in America right now. We don't call uh, two students, black students, going to the University of Georgia integration, nor do we cause, call uh, four children, black children, going to school in New Orleans integration, nor do we call a handful of black students going to school in Little Rock integration. If every black man in the state of Arkansas can't go to any school he wants, that's not integration. And if every black child in the state of Louisiana cannot go to any school that they are qualified for in the morning, then that's not integration. And likewise with Georgia and any other state in America. It's no integration with us until the entire thing is given, is laid on the table, not a hundred years from now, but in the morning. And at the rate that the NAACP, CORE, and uh, uh, the Urban League is uh, willing to accept the, the change of attitude in the white man's mind, we who are Muslims feel we'll be sitting around here in America for another thousand years, uh, not waiting for civil rights or something like that, but even waiting to be uh, granted the rights of a human being. I have a feeling that um, a great many words have been floating around, have been floating around this table which need to be um, redefined. And that, by the way, is the problem I think which faces, facing this entire country. Now, I don't agree with Mr. X about the student movement, and I do know something about the war incipient war between the students and some of the leaders. I know I know the gap, the enormous gap between the NAACP and the children in the South. I don't agree that to sit in, you know, I don't agree that it is necessarily passive. I think it demands a tremendous amount of power in one's, in one's personal life and, and, and in terms of political polemical activity, sometimes to, to, to sit down and do nothing or seem to do nothing. But finally, when the, when the sit-in movement started, or when a great many things started in the, in, the, in the Western world, it was not, I don't think, I think it had a great deal less to do with equality than it had to do with power. And I do think we have to talk about, we have to decide what we want, you know. Now, what has happened in the world in relation to black people is not that white people have suddenly changed and become more, uh, more conscious of, of a black man's humanity. Is, what has happened is very simple. This is the white power has been broken. And, and this means, among other things, that it is no longer possible for an Englishman to describe an African and make the African believe it. It is no longer possible for a white man in this country to tell a Negro who he is and make the Negro believe this. The controlling image is absolutely gone. Now, it seems to me the responsibility which faces us then, the question which faces us, which faces me in any case, is since there is a distinction between power and equality, there is a distinction between power and freedom. And I know that in terms, for example, of, of Africa, that an African nation cannot expect to be respected unless it is free. I know that it, unless it is, unless it has its political destiny in its own hands, which is what we mean by power, there is no hope that the English will deal with an African nation on, they will deal with an African nation as a, sub, as a subjugated nation as long as it is in fact subjugated. That is not quite the same situation that we face here in America as American Negroes. I can see that I might very well, for one reason or another, leave this country tomorrow and never come back. But this will not make me, this will not cease, I will not cease to be an American Negro for this reason. And the history of our, our history in this country is something that I think we have to face, especially since we're demanding that white people face it. And whether I like it or not, whether, whether you like it or not, this issue about integration is a, is a false issue because we have been integrated here ever since we got here. 
I am no longer a pure African. There are no pure Africans in this country. The history which has produced us is something which in any case we're going to have to deal with one of these days. But I think it is a mistake to pretend this issue did not happen. What we're arguing about, I think, one of the things in any case I think I would be arguing about is the effect of this on the Negro world and the great divisions in it. So that, so that it does, in fact, range from people who imagine they are white, you know, who never talk to Negroes, to people who imagine that if they can make a buck, they will somehow beat the system, to homeless and, and demoralized black boys and girls who have nowhere to, who don't know where to go. The issue, it seems to me, the reason the city movement is important, the reason it's so ferment is of such importance, is not that I want anybody's cup of coffee, or even to go, particularly to anybody's school, it is because the country cannot afford, the country cannot afford to have, as it has at this moment, millions of black boys and girls in various ghettos all over the country, either perishing literally, or perishing, I must say, finally with bitter, the kind of demoral, demoralization and bitterness and hatred, which can, after all, blow this country wide apart. The importance, in my mind, of the Muslim movement, in conclusion, is that, it is the first time, I think, in the history of this country that uh, a Negro audience, a, a, a Negro laborer, a Negro, a Negro schoolboy has heard his own condition described and, without anybody trying to flinch from it. It is very different hearing a speech by Roy Wilkins in which, you know, um, one is told in one way or another that tomorrow will be better. Uh, and I think this has a tremendous effect. This is the reason Muslim, I think the Muslim speaker has so much power over his audience. It comes out of a failure in the Republic. This country has lied about the Negro situation for 100 years. And now what has happened is the lies are no longer viable, can no longer be, can, can no longer be accepted even when they can talk old. And the country has waited so long and it does not know how to handle this. And it's created a moral vacuum. There's a moral vacuum in the, in the Negro ghettos and the same way there's a moral vacuum in New Orleans, which is filled with desperate people. Now, I don't think that we can afford this. It seems to me, and now I speak for myself, my call with the official Negro leadership, and my call with uh, those such Negroes who imagine they are um, integrated or imagine they somehow escaped Negro condition, is that they are not willing to do what I think is absolutely essential when it's got to re-examine the basis, the standards of this country. It should not only afflict black people, they afflict the entire country. No one in this country, as far as I can see, really knows any longer what it means to be, to be an American. He, he does not know what he means by freedom. He does not know what he means by equality. We live in the most abysmal ignorance of not only the condition of 20 million Negroes in our midst, but the, the whole nature of the life being lived in the rest of the world. And I think that the American, the American right now, the Republic, is paying and beginning to pay for his treatment of the Negro in terms of what he does not know about the rest of the world. You cannot live, it seems to me, in a, you cannot live 30 years, let's say, with something in your closet which you know is there and pretend it is not there without something terrible happening to you. By and by, what you can, what I cannot say if I know that any one of you, you know, has um, murdered your brother, your mother, and the corpse is in this room under the table, and I know it, and you know it, and you know I know it. And we cannot talk about it. It takes no time at all before we cannot talk about anything. Before absolute silence descends. 
And that kind of silence is coming out of this country. I think if this country has become a, in, almost inconceivably radical, it has really got to do something they've not done before. And this involves the humanity of everybody in it. And the key to this is in the Negro. If one can face that, one can face anything. But that has not been faced. And I think this is the reason for the confusion and the ferment and the great, great danger. Again, let me say this, and I will stop. I'm not religious. Um, and therefore, since I'm not religious, all theologies, uh, for me, are suspect. All theologies have a certain use. But um, I never, for example, believe in the myth of the virgin birth. I never quite understood why it was necessary to propagate such a peculiar notion. Therefore, you know, in, as theologies go, it seems to me the Muslim theology is just as good as any. One can't quarrel with it there. I can't, anyway. But I personally, I personally reject that theology that I reject all others. And I don't think that we need it. And this is a great, this is a gamble. It's a very reckless thing to say. And perhaps, you know, I'm, perhaps it's very mystical. I know the kind of world I would like to see. I would like to think of myself as I'm needing to be, um, um, supported by a myth. I would like to think of myself as being able to face whatever it is I have to face as me, dealing with what I have and what, and what there is, without having my identity dependent on something which finally has to be believed, which cannot be tested. This is why one is converted to a religion, you know. I think that it, there's nothing very dangerous in it. What I would like to see and maybe we'll never live to see it, is a world in which these things are not necessary, which I will not need to invent, in effect, a heritage and a history that can deal with the one I have, and will not need, in order to, in order to deal with the rest of the world, not need to feel superior to them, but simply, simply be a part of them. And it seems to me this may happen. Well, I'll never see a world in which there are no blacks, there are no whites, where it does not matter. Because as long as it does matter, as long as it does matter, and it doesn't matter who is wearing a shoe, the confusion will be great and the bloodshed will be great. Well, I, uh, as a black man, and proud of being a black man, I, I can't conceive of myself as having any desire whatsoever to lose my identity. I wouldn't want to live in a world uh, where none of my kind existed. I, and I do think that the Negro, Americans, American so-called Negro, is the only person on earth who would be willing to lose his identity in a, what you might call a, a new product. Uh, this, I heard one fellow say one day that, that there eventually intermarriage and intermixing would take place on such a vast scale that it would produce a chocolate-colored race. And, uh, and Martin Luther King was in a uh, discussion, televised discussion, with a white uh, newspaper man. I saw it on the television a couple months ago. And this white newspaper man put this to him. Uh, he said, he pointed out that he's proud of his white race. He's proud of what he is. He's proud of the, his racial characteristics uh, to the extent where he has no desire to lose it by mixing with any other race. And the thing that he said he couldn't understand was why the so-called Negroes don't have the same uh, racial pride that whites have in trying to retain their characteristics. And Martin Luther King never answered him, although he should have answered him. Uh, I think that it is uh, that it's disastrous for the black people in America to reach the point 
where they, their race pride, racial pride uh, disappears and they don't, want, they don't care whether their blood is mixed up with someone else's. I think that also one of the things that brings this about, as the Honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches us, the very fact that you have to refer to the black man in America as a Negro shows you that right there something is wrong. And African doesn't accept this term Negro. And uh, you find they teach us in the educational system of this country that Negro is a Spanish word that's supposed to mean black. Uh, yet, when you find the uh, black people who live in Spanish-speaking countries of South and Central America, they don't accept the word Negro to identify themselves. Uh, no one allows himself to be classified <coughs> under the word Negro, but the black man here in America who is a descendant of the slaves. And very seldom is it ever applied to anybody but the black man in here, here in America, who is the descendant of the slaves. When you ask a man his identity, he should use a a word that connects him with a, with a culture. If you ask him his nationality, it should connect him with, with a nation. Like if I ask a man his nationality and he says German, that connects him with Germany. Or if he says, uh, even if he says German-American, it still connects him with uh, having originated. His family, his history uh, has originated in Germany. If he says he's French-American, it connects him uh, with France. But when you ask the black man in America, and he tells you Negro, he doesn't put any other, he doesn't, he doesn't put any, any other country up front, in, in, uh, in front, he puts American Negro, or he'll just say Negro. This doesn't identify him. And usually when you find a man who calls himself a Negro, he can't tell you what language that he spoke before he came to this country. It's of no consequence, no interest. He believes that prior to coming here, he was a savage in the jungle, and therefore he had no language. And this justifies his uh, lack of knowledge concerning that mother tongue today. And the history, as uh, Mr. Baldwin pointed out, of the white man here in America and the black man here in America points up the fact that the Negro, or the man here who calls himself a Negro, is just an ex-slave. If he is an ex-slave, I'd rather say he's still a slave. But he's wearing his slave master's name, the name that was given to him during slavery. He's speaking the language of the man who made him a slave because he has no knowledge of his own tongue. He only knows the history, his own history, as taught to him by his former slave master, who purposely hid from him his, uh, his own history to make him think that he was an inferior being before being brought here. And uh, Mr. Muhammad teaches us that until the black man here in America is uh, connected or reestablished uh, or given, an, given some knowledge of his existence prior to coming here to America, his own uh, appraisal of himself, will be so low that he'll actually think that the white man is doing him a favor to let him be here in America no matter what his status is. And he, he also, and this is one of the reasons today why he fights so hard, some of them, to sit down next to the white man. They actually think that the white man is the personification of perfection. And whenever they're allowed to go live in his neighborhood or sit in his restaurant or uh, uh, mingle or socialize with him, that they have attained, that they have made progress. But uh, when they go back and study the history of their own people and the accomplishments of their own people, the civilizations and cultures, black civilizations and black cultures that existed in Africa at a time when the whites in Europe were living a cave-like uh, 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 existence, then immediately their appraisal of, their self, of themselves uh, begins to uh, go higher. And they don't think that to beg uh, 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 somebody to mingle with them in this country is any kind of progress whatsoever. And I would like to say one more thing, too, on that nonviolent thing, that the black man in America is the only one 
who is encouraged to be nonviolent, or the black man in Africa or the black man in Asia. Uh, never do you find white people encouraging other whites to be nonviolent. Uh, whites uh, idolize fighters. They idolize the Hungarian freedom fighters who came to this country and uh, right now can work on jobs that the sit-in students can't get, can live in neighborhoods that the sit-in students can't live in, and can go into play public places that the students sit in can't go because they are fighters. Everyone loves a fighter. They respect the fighter. And, but at the same time that they admire these fighters, they encourage the so-called Negro in America to get his uh, uh, desires fulfilled with a sit-in stroke or a passive approach or a love-your-enemy uh, approach or pray for those who despitefully use you. This is insane. And we feel as Muslims, until we see white people practicing this nonviolence, take Pearl Harbor, when the Japanese pa uh, attacked Pearl Harbor, the American white man didn't say, pray for the Japanese and uh, let them now bomb Manhattan or uh, Staten Island. No, they said, praise the Lord, but pass the ammunition. But, uh, and if anybody comes along, like Mr. Muhammad, and begins to point out uncompromisingly in blunt terms that don't need diplomatic language that can be misinterpreted, and he begins to point out these atrocities and crimes that have been committed against black people here in America today. The white man can never deny the fact that he's guilty, but he'll always say, well, forget the past and let's look forward. But uh, uh, the only people who are told to forget the injustices that have been done to them are the black people. But when it comes to whites right today, you can turn on any radio, turn on any television, read any newspaper, and the uh, Jews have magnified to the world the crimes that were committed against them 20 years ago or so by Eichmann, uh, and they keep you sitting on the edge of your seat wanting to strangle Eichmann, or it's almost like a hate Germany uh, campaign, but yet the Jews are never accused of teaching hate because they remind, of the world, remind the world of the crimes that were committed against them. But when the black man here in America begins to stand up and speak about the crimes that are committed against him throughout America every day, no letter, just different forms, immediately a black man who dwells on that is considered a racist, considered an extremist, or considered someone who is advocating a doctrine that will bring about violence and bring about a deterioration in the so-called good relations that are supposed to be developing between black and white in this country. So we just can't go along with any of that. And I think that this is the thing that the white people of America should realize, that Mr. Muhammad's teaching, and it's spreading, so you have to deal with it, Mr. Muhammad's teaching doesn't teach the black man to wait for the white man to change his mind. Mr. Muhammad's teaching is changing the, the black man's appraisal of himself. And as soon as the black man uh, undergoes a reappraisal of himself and realizes that he's a man too, he says to himself, why should he wait for the Supreme Court to give him what a white man has when he's born? Why should he wait for the Congress or the Senate or the President to tell him that he should have this when if he's a man the same as that man is a man, he doesn't need any President, he doesn't need any Congress, he doesn't need any Supreme Court, he doesn't need anybody but himself to bring about that which is his if he is a man. If you want to watch the full content, go to uh, YouTube, which is uploaded by J.D. Productions LLC. I want to give the, um, you know, the person who um, uploaded the video credit where credit is due. That's my belief. If you're going to, to reference their article or product, give the give the originator the credit. So thank you, JD Productions LLC.
And I was reading the Paris Review years ago. Um, well, it was made years ago. And this was, this was beautiful. And the interviewer in the Paris Review would say, would you tell us how you came to leave the States? He said, I was broke. James Baldwin said, I was broke. I got to Paris with $40 in my pocket, but I had to get out of New York. My reflexes were tormented by the plight of other people. Reading had taken me away for long periods at a time, yet I still had to deal with the streets and the authorities and the cold. I knew what it meant to be white, and I knew what it meant to be a nigger. I knew what was going to happen to me. My luck was running out. I was going to go to jail. I was going to kill somebody or be killed. My best friend had committed suicide two years earlier, jumping off the George Washington Bridge. When I arrived in Paris in 1948, I didn't know a word of French. I didn't know anyone. I didn't want to know anyone. Wow, this was, this is powerful. Um, and then he mentioned that he would, you know, ask or beg for money, um, you know, when he was trying to go from hotel to hotel, um, but he wasn't kicked out because there was a couple, a nice um, couple, um, the Korsh, uh, was it a Korshikin family that helped, took care of him when he was sick. Um, he could never understand it, but he was so grateful for that family. Um, she would use, the old lady would use old folk remedies to get him, um, to help him get well and to stay alive. Um, so the interviewer would say, why you choose France? And he said, it's something very interesting. It wasn't so much a matter of choosing France. It was a matter of getting out of America. I didn't know what was going to happen to me in France, but I knew what was going to happen to me in New York. So basically as a black American from New York, he was afraid that if things continue to go the way it is going, he could be lynched, he could be killed, he could kill somebody. He just doesn't see a positive outcome for him. It happens to the best of us so many times. I mean, especially today. But the interviewer who said, you said the city beat him to death. You mean metaphorically? No, not, and Baldwin said, no, not so metaphorically, looking for a place to live, looking for a job. You begin to doubt your judgment. You begin to doubt everything. You become imprecise. And that's when you're beginning to go under. You've been beaten and it's been liberated. The whole society has decided to make you nothing and they don't even know they're doing it. So if you want to see the rest of this article, go to the Paris Review online on the parisreview.org. Yes, um, it was interviewed by Jordan L. Rebley, the spring of 1984. So please check out the Paris Review online. 
at theparisreview.org. Great interview. Uh, I'm, I'm enjoying it. Now, there has been rumors and speculation that Billy Porter is going to do a um, portrayal of James Baldwin because of Baldwin's sexuality. Um, I don't know much about Baldwin's sexuality, but even with his sexuality, he chose his people, he chose being black first. And that's when, and that's where a lot of people in the LGBTQ, including Billy Porter, has forgotten about. They chose Billy Porter about it. Um, this is not to disrespect Billy Porter, but I don't think it's necessary to do a documentary, especially choosing um, Billy Porter, because I say this because he never really or rarely spoke about his sexuality. In fact, he spoke about his work. He spoke about his life experience in New York City, his life experience in America. That's what we really should be focusing more about instead of his sexuality. That's one thing I've learned about James Baldwin. Okay. I mean, I would, if I were everybody, I would go ahead, buy or read his essays, his book, his articles. James Baldwin is a once-in-a-lifetime great writer and great thinker. And that debate that he had with Malcolm X is very powerful. It's something that you want to listen to. Man, it is worth the price of admission, but it's on YouTube. So please check it out. Um, JD Productions LLC, he has uploaded it. On YouTube, so I have to give him credit. Much love to JD Productions LLC. Much love. And that will do it. So remember, always make the impossible possible. Success comes from you. Which road are you going to take? So until next time, I'm out. Be safe. Much love.